Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Free speech is one of the rights our country was founded on, but questions about how the First Amendment is being used and interpreted on campuses nationwide have been coming up frequently in the last couple of years. Today, we explore the latest campus protest to make the headlines, this time at Middlebury College in Vermont. What is most important must be spoken. Make That's the sound of students chanting when controversial author Charles Murray walked on stage at the college on March 2nd. Coming up, we'll find out what happened next and why. And later, we'll hear opposing views on how students should protest. One is a college student who argues protests in response to controversial speakers on campuses is not a sign that young people are coddled. A civil liberties attorney will also join us to argue what happened at Middlebury is an attack on free speech. First, we want to find out what happened that evening at Middlebury College. Joining us now is Scott Jassick, co-founder and editor at Inside Higher Ed. Scott, welcome to where we live. Thanks. Great to be here. It's been a week and a half now since that event um, at Middlebury that's gotten a lot of attention nationally. Um, you were, you've been covering that story. You know, what happened that night? So the speaker was Charles Murray, who wrote The Bell Curve, a very controversial and much criticized book that many feel and endorsed ideas about race and IQ and intelligence that are uh, deeply offensive to many people. He was invited to give a speech as he uh, started to speak or approached the podium rather to speak. Students chanted, shouted, and turned his, their backs on him such that he couldn't give his talk. After about 20 minutes, the college moved him to another location where he did speak on video and answered questions. Then as he and a professor who moderated the Q&A were leaving, um, their car was attacked and a professor was physically attacked. Um, the protest in the lecture hall is believed to be largely students chanting and shouting. They're believed to be non-students who were in a significant way responsible for the attack on the professor and the car. And how has uh, Middlebury College responded? I think I saw one of your latest reports uh, that says, you know, it's still unclear who were part of the group that um, attacked um, that professor, uh, Allison Stanger, and Charles Murray as they walked to their car, um, the belief that some of these people were not part of the the college um, community, and they were actually um, from outside uh, Middlebury College, and they were masked, so you couldn't tell who they were. Right, and so that is also not on video. Um, so the, the town police are investigating that. The uh, disruption of the lecture, however, um, was, much of it was on video and photos, um, and the college is investigating who there violated college rules. Prior to the uh, attempt by Murray to speak, the college warned students that it is against Middlebury rules to disrupt a speech. Middlebury, like most colleges, is very pro-protest as long as it doesn't disrupt someone else's right to talk. You said that it's part of the, the college rule. Is that something that's happened in the last couple of years as uh, the issue of free speech and what should and should not be allowed on campuses has come uh, more to, to the front? 
Um, actually, it's long-standing to many people. I mean, many uh, people in higher education highly value the exchange of ideas, even very controversial ideas, even ideas that offend many people. And the uh, and that's why, for instance, many colleges will only let a speaker speak if uh, he or she will take questions, will interact with the audience. Um, in in and so colleges routinely say protest outside, hand out leaflets, but you can't disrupt. The idea of the heckler's veto, as some call it, is where, where hecklers are uh, chanting or shouting, make it impossible to give a speech. And the tradition in higher ed is that that is a violation of academic freedom and the right of people to bring people to colleges to speak. You, know, you mentioned uh, the, the rules. I'm curious with uh, the invitation of Charles Murray to the, the college campus, um, this event was going to be a Q&A between him and Professor Stanger, but then there were going to be questions. Talk about the format. Well, the, originally he was going to come speak, and after his lecture the professor was going to moderate a Q&A. When uh, he was unable to speak, the professor did the questions because they couldn't they did it in a setting without students in the room, um, you know, and and so it, it, people tend to want interaction, uh, whether they like a speaker or hate a speaker, and that's why people are taking so seriously the uh, concerns that um, they were denied that experience at Middlebury. Would this have gotten as much attention if the uh, protests had not escalated where this Professor Stanger uh, was injured? I, I saw reports that she received a concussion? Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, had it been a different kind of protest, it might have gotten no attention at all. I, I, I have an article on our site today about a protest of a speech that took place the same night as Middlebury College's um, at uh, Franklin and Marshall. And the speaker was the Danish journalist who published those controversial cartoons of Muhammad some years back. Um, some students, some Muslim students at Franklin and Marshall didn't like the idea that he was there. They protested outside. They came and stood together during the talk, but they didn't interrupt. They asked tough questions. Now, as a result, you haven't heard much about that protest. Um, you know, there's some who would say that had the students just ignored Murray, no one would have heard, heard, heard of his Middlebury visit. Now he's become something of a martyr to free speech. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the issue of free speech on college campuses. Uh, this is after a protest on March 2nd on Middlebury College in Vermont that turned violent uh, and a lot of attention nationally about what this means uh, for future events and what's happening on college campuses. We wanted to get um, perspective from the Middlebury College community. So joining the conversation now is Elizabeth Suyon Lee. She's a student at Middlebury, a senior uh, majoring in philosophy. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, so it's been uh, several days, uh, more than a week now since this event. Uh, tell us, you know, you were not actually inside the event because there were so many people that wanted to see this Charles Murray uh, speaking. But what did you see happen that night? Right. So I was able to actually watch the live stream um, apart from being in the room. And what I saw was that there were different factions of the protest. So there were people who thought that it would just be fine to have posters. Some people wanted to distribute pamphlets, but others definitely wanted to, you know, disrupt what the speaker was seeing, uh, was saying. And what I heard was first there was a um, a reading of the history of eugenics, especially at Middlebury College, because apparently we used to have a eugenics department at Middlebury College. And I think that that really touched upon why Murray's uh, research about IQ and race is specifically harmful 
to the Middlebury community as well as the intellectual community at large. Um, I think um, uh, Scott was correct in pointing out that um, after about 20 minutes, the administrators did decide to move to a different location. Um, at that point, I decided to come out and see what was going on with the protest. But at that point, students were actually shut out from the student center by public safety officers and Murray, um, um, giving Murray the space to be able to record whatever he was saying. Do you agree with how the event was handled um, by the school? I mean, obviously there were issues um, in the op-ed that um, in the New York Times where you um, offered up your opinion. Uh, there's this concern among campus that giving Charles Murray this event on stage legitimizes some of his controversial views. But what about the way that the students in- handled it in the audience and not allowing him to speak at all? Is that the most appropriate way? I think that this Um, response was justified. First of all, there was only one week leading up to the protest, and there were lots of events leading up to the protest, um, uh, leading up to the protest, for example, open letters to Lori Patton, open letters to the Department of Political Science to not co-sponsor this event. I think that because the college administration, as Professor Linus Owens points out in another segment, decided that they would not compromise to any of these letters, I think that this eventually led to the escalation that happened on the day of. Um, I also want to point out that Murray has like a history of um, a pretty of not engaging with the audience in a in a legitimate way. He's gone to dozens of colleges and he's been challenged in Q and A, but he's always given answers that um, kind of push back on people's ability to um, feel like they belong on college campuses. For example, he pushed the idea that um, there are no legitimate female scientists. He visited before and in 2007, and, and during the Q&A, he told black students that they should be going, they would be better off going to state schools or community colleges um, because uh, rather than an, an elite institution like Middlebury. Um, after that, that visit, there was a debrief by professors saying that they should and would not invite Murray back in a lecture format, and the only format that is uh, acceptable would be for a panel or debate, which is not what happened at Middlebury last Thursday. Do you think, though, that this was a missed opportunity for students and faculty to challenge someone like Charles Murray, who was very controversial, some of his uh, research that has been debunked, instead of shouting him down and now he's getting all this attention, as uh, Scott Jassick says from Inside, Inside Higher Ed, as a free speech martyr? Yeah, I think what the ideal situation would have been was to actually be able to challenge him on an equal playing field, right? That means having somebody out there with a um, with a point of view that is opposite or contrary to what Murray is saying in order to point out the flaws in his speech. What I was very against, however, and I think a lot of students were very against, was giving him 30 minutes of basically protected speech on a stage um, with a microphone as well as uh, as well as security forces to be able to skew his views instead of having somebody directly challenging him. Because I think that there's already been a lot of um, pushback against him and that his work doesn't have much academic merit. It doesn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't peer-reviewed before he, uh, he published the work. So I think that in this case, it would have been very um, academically helpful as well as helpful for the students to be able to have the voice on the stage rather than only being able to challenge him through Q&A. If I could offer another, uh, some other perspectives, I think it's important to note that he was invited by a student group. And the way invitations work at many colleges is any student or faculty group can invite a speaker. 
And, and the idea is that not every event necessarily represents all points of view, but that cumulatively, by having different people invite different people with different perspectives, you have a sense of free speech. I, I guess I would ask the question, if everyone has to be on a panel and debated, do students then end up endorsing the proposition that it's a uh, more conservative institution? If uh, Bernie Sanders goes, he would have to be challenged, uh, debated by Ted Cruz. Um, and it's also worth noting that there are many campuses where Bernie Sanders wouldn't be invited, or probably more, more specifically, where uh, politicians or people who are outspoken in favor of abortion rights or gay rights are denied the right to speak. And so uh, the issue of free speech, um, it's important to, to, to remember that it's not just Middlebury, mm -hmm. and, uh, but when people argue for certain limits on speech, they perhaps should think about the impact it would have elsewhere. Did you want to respond, Elizabeth? Yeah, so I want to just think it's really important to make the distinction between the right to free speech and the difference between that and amplified or what I like to call elevated speech. And I think that elevated speech is actually a privilege because I think on college campuses, what elevated speech means is that um, it's contingent upon academic merit and the value of your ideas. That is to say, I think colleges have a responsibility to maximize the learning experience of having speakers coming to the college and um, and um, engaging with the students. I think in this very case, that having Murray alone without any counterpoint to him would not have had much academic merit or maximized the academic experience of students. I think that in this case, the, stu uh, the, the college needed to make sure that the event uh, the, the event was accessible to students and that the event made students believe that their voices were heard within that uh, within that space. Well, Elizabeth, uh, Professor Stanger, wouldn't she have provided some of that counterpoint of being able to um, push uh, Charles Murray on some of his views? And again, the students would have had an opportunity to speak with uh, him afterward. That was the way that the event was, was um, they were going to have that happen, according to Scott Jasek. Yeah, so I think that the difference between, you know, Allison Sanger and potentially some another scholar who has um, debunked his views on race is that Allison Sanger, I don't believe, was sufficiently critical enough for um, uh, for that discussion to have actually happened. Um, she argued within a panel, um, uh, within a discussion in political science about the co-sponsorship, that because Murray is married to an Asian woman and therefore he is not racist, um, I think that that is a false assertion and doesn't accurately represent the views of individuals who are, you know, Asian or of a different, uh, who are um, people of color. And so I think that there really needed to be an individual who understood issues of race, who had um, scholarship behind them, disproving Murray's ideas and countering Murray's ideas in order for that sort of interaction to work. Let's I talk about... I, I oh. just point out that colleges have speakers every day of the week. Um, they are not typically reviewed to see, do they have views that everyone likes? They don't have the, um, critics recruited. Um, this is part of the marketplace of ideas, or at least that is the idea of many in higher education. The, the kind of process being outlined for what would have made a Murray speech acceptable does not happen at, you know, at, in most colleges and universities, period, whether the speaker is somebody embraced by students or criticized by students. And it's worth remembering that popular speakers who might come to campus if, um, 
you know, if, if Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders appeared on campus, would you want somebody who's committed to taking him down as the, um, to question him, or would you be happy to have Bernie visit? Um, I'm not sure that um, I see many colleges, when they have Bernie Sanders speak, request that somebody um, attack him. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking about free speech on campus. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Elizabeth Suyon Lee is on the line with us, a Middlebury College student, also Scott Jassick, co-founder and editor at Inside Higher Ed. Elizabeth, what's the dynamic now on campus? You know, we mentioned Professor Stanger. You said she was would not have been a uh, an effective counterpoint, but again, the event never happened. So how do you how how in the way do you know that um, this would not have been an event where you could challenge his ideas yet again? But she was injured by this attack um, after the event. Uh, what's happening now with uh, you know the, the dynamic between students and the, the leaders of your college? And again, the spotlight is on your school as uh, an example of, of how you know people with, should really value free speech and not shut down other person's ability to speak. Right. So I just want to quickly respond to what uh, was said earlier. I think that it is not simply just this point of view that is problematic to students. A lot of conservative speakers come on campus without much protest. But I think that specifically Mr. Murray, what he has done is uh, was presented as a scholar, was endorsed by these uh, different uh, or co-sponsored by these different departments. And his academic scholarship is simply not up to par. And I think that that's what people were uh, were uh, protesting. He misrepresents his data. He assumes traits are immutable and racially determined. He confuses correlation with causation. And I think that those are the kinds of things that people were protesting and believed that there needed to be some sort of counterpoint or that Mr. Murray didn't really have the academic merit to speak at Middlebury College and have all these departments co-sponsor him. We think that, you know, if you were just to come with a student group and that these departments didn't co-sponsor him, it probably wouldn't have created such a large controversy. Um, in terms of what's happening now, um, I think a lot of people are, what this really did was spark not only the national dialogue, but on campus, everybody's talking about this. And I think that this really has to, um, shown the diversity and points of view on campus and people willing to engage in academic debate and dialogue about free speech on campus, which I think is very valuable. Um, the other thing is that the administration is obviously trying to um, you, uh, to to have disciplinary action on individuals who violated college policy. Um, while I think it's uh, important for the college to uphold its you know standards, I think that a you know restorative justice, sort of framework would probably work best in this, uh, in if, this instance. Elizabeth, if some of the students were involved in that attack on Professor Stanger and Charles Murray, what do you think should happen to them? I think that it's thoroughly unclear what actually happened, right? Because nobody has a recording and there's been competing narratives. And so I think insofar as people don't really know what happened, I think it's difficult for us to make a judgment about uh, what narratives are ones that we should trust and which ones uh, we shouldn't. Scott, I'll ask you, uh, you know, again, we're talking about Middlebury College, and you said earlier this is not just happening at uh, this college campus in Vermont. You know, is there is there what's going on around the country uh, in terms of trends that we see? You know, there were protests at UC Berkeley in February. We've seen protests here in Connecticut at Yale University. Um, you know, talk about how colleges are responding and what does this mean um, on the larger scale of what how we talk to each other in American society? 
Well, I mean, there's been some interesting polling by Gallup that shows that most college students, if you ask them do they support free speech, they say yes. But many of them say that it's okay for colleges to regulate what they consider hate speech. The problem, and so there is real debate within among students about whether certain kinds of speech can be regulated. This is a very challenging issue to the traditions of truly free speech and free exchange. Um, I guess I, I, I tend to think that the, um, if you look within higher ed, there are far more examples of ideas that are bad ideas, and many people think Murray is, Murray's work is terrible, that they get, they get defeated by uh, critique, by engagement. Um, I would say the last 10 days there have been more positive discussion of Murray than prior to the Middlebury protest. Did it really achieve what it wanted? Scott Jassick, co-founder and editor at Inside Higher Ed. Scott, thank you for your time today. Thank you. I also Bye. want to thank Elizabeth Suyan Lee, a student at Middlebury College. Elizabeth, thank you for your perspective as well. Thank you for having me here. Coming up, we're going to talk more broadly about free speech on college campuses. What do you think? Do you teach at a local university or college? Are there conversations that are taking place? Are there things that you're afraid to talk about in class, fearing backlash? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up later, we're going to hear about a program that offers first-time youth offenders an alternative to the juvenile justice system. It's called Project Youth Court in New Haven. WNPR's Lori Mack will join us a little later. But first, we're talking about free speech on campuses after a largely student-run protest at Middlebury College earlier this month in Vermont turned violent. Now, this isn't the first college protest over a controversial speaker. It most likely won't be the last. Last month, protesters streamed onto UC Berkeley's campus breaking windows, launching fireworks, causing a speech by former Breitbart uh, writer Milo Yiannopoulos to be canceled. Now, supporters of the Middlebury campus protest say inviting certain speakers with views that marginalize certain populations like students of color only legitimizes that speaker. Now, those who disagree with how Middlebury students shut down the event with Charles Murray, they say what happened is an ineffective way to challenge people whose views they oppose. What do you think? We'll take your calls after we hear from our next guest, the number 860-275-7266. I want to welcome into the conversation now Robert Shibley, Civil Liberties Attorney, Executive Director of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. For, for our listeners who don't know about your group, tell us about FIRE. Yeah, FIRE was founded in 1999 to defend uh, free speech, due process, and uh, the other First Amendment rights on America's college and university campuses. Now, you're, you've been working on uh, these, these rights for communities for some time. You wrote an op-ed following what happened at Middlebury. What, what do you think what happened in terms of how the students responded? Well, I think we've seen a really disturbing turn recently towards violence as a response to speech that people find offensive or speech that people don't like. Um, one of the core uh, values of a liberal democracy is that instead of responding to things we don't like with violence, we respond with argumentation. We respond with discourse and discussion. And it, it's worrisome as a civil liberties advocate to see uh, that start to, to slip a little bit, especially on our college campuses where we really 
really do uh, need everybody to be able to uh, speak uh, without restriction because they are supposed to be uh, testing their ideas against one another and, and learning by that process. And that, that simply isn't going to happen if somebody uh, like Charles Murray uh, tries to come to campus and they get a stop sign thrown at their car. Uh, that's, that's, that's not productive, and it is the opposite of, of free speech. The idea that with university uh, climate, you know, the free exchange of ideas where you can actually learn something and challenge people with opposing views, you see that not happening? Is that more of a trend? Well, I think the, the disturbing thing we've seen is that um, traditionally and, and through most of FIRE's existence, the real, um, the real opponents, uh, per se, of free speech on campus have been college administrators who uh, have these restrictive rules about free speech. And, and most schools still do have those rules um, that in order to try to, I guess, keep a lid on what they, what they would see as you know, campus disorder and division. Uh, I don't think that's been working, but they've had those rules. But the more recent and I think uh, a very worrisome development is starting to see students think that, uh, you know, taking this kind of action to silence speakers, whether it be through uh, the disinvitations that we increasingly see um, of graduation speakers or other speakers on campus, that's when you tell them, hey, you shouldn't even be able to come. Um, and now this, this, this uh, matter of actually uh, giving in to violence um, in order to try to silence the person you don't want to hear, whether it be Milo Yiannopoulos or Charles Murray. Um, this is a trend that we really cannot allow to get started on our college campuses because that is, that is the, that's the quote-unquote justice of the mob. That's not how a liberal democracy works. Uh, Ferenc Lafargue is director of the Center for Cultural Engagement at Catholic University. Uh, he joins us by phone now. Uh, Ferenc, welcome to the show. Um, good morning. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Now, we invited you on because you had written an op-ed last year um, in the Washington Post. The title was, Coddled Students and Their Safe Spaces Aren't the Problem, Bigots Are. So what was happening at that time, and what, what, was, your, what was the response to your op-ed? Well, I, I, a couple of things were happening next. I think the, the picture that was uh, being painted of college students was that they were coddled, um, that they were too sensitive. And I was actually trying to argue the exact opposite, that um, these students were actually trying to bring to the fore issues that were real, not things that should be um, put aside until they get into the quote-unquote real world, and that racism, bigotry, um, sexism, misogyny, homophobia um, are things that they actually feel um, on their college campuses and are probably and are issue, issues well worth um, addressing not only on campus um, but in the general public sphere and I would even argue that you know one of the things that's been lost in some of the more recent conversations is that it's arguably we're not giving the, a lot of these students who were um, misrepresented last year credit for being right if we look at um, how the election turned out. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a good argument to be made that the fears about xenophobia, um, sexism, that these students were trying to raise awareness about, um, are actually still very much um, in existence. On the flip side, you know, people will say that uh, the identity politics in this country is what led um, uh, many people who felt like their voices were not being heard to vote for someone like Donald Trump. Um, you know, I, I have heard that argument, um, and, and I think that's we tend to sort of my, the term that I use of that is um, there are a lot of people who suffer from what they call you know diversity fatigue, um, but I do don't think that's a reason to um, uh, to avoid um, you know the, the, the realities of 
uh, the kinds of inequities that are still persistent. Um, I wanted to turn back to Robert Shibley, who's again executive director of FIRE, also civil liberties attorney. You know, what's your take, Robert, in terms of you know, these students that are being vocal, they're part of marginalized populations, they want to stand up um, and, and voice their concerns. Um, how do we respond to them? Well, I think, uh, first of all, it's important that those students be able to do that in, in through peaceful protest and through open dialogue. And so, uh, you know, FIRE has also, you know, spent many much time and, and had many cases where students who were engaging in peaceful protests were being shut down uh, by their universities, and we've, we've fought for those students. So it is critical that, that peaceful protesters be able to express themselves. Um, and so that's that's number one. It's the it's when it, it starts to cross over into these attempts to to silence other people uh, that uh, the, the the civil libertarian calculus starts to work in the other direction. And with regard to you know with regard to this idea that we need to, to be scared of or you know maybe that's overstating it, but that we need to be concerned about these ideas being expressed. You know we, there's actually you know some data on this. Um, in European countries, they've had hate speech laws for years. Um, in France, Holocaust denial has been illegal for decades as hate, hate speech. Um, France actually jailed, uh, jailed dozens of people um, after the Charlie Hebdo attacks uh, for, for saying things that uh, complimented those attackers on Twitter. And this is in a country with uh, strong hate speech restrictions, and yet uh, a 2014 ADL survey showed that 37% of the French uh, harbored anti-Semitic beliefs. And in Greece, which uh, where it's been hate speech has been illegal since 1979, it's 69%, which is horrendous. USA, where we have none of those laws, it's nine. Now I understand that the USA is not exactly the same as Greece and France and other European countries, but if the restrictions on what we hear uh, are going to be effective, if if that's going to be the argument, let's actually see some you know let's see some evidence that those are actually effective. I don't think it's out there. Hmm. I want to take some calls now. Uh, Stephanie's calling from Hartford. Stephanie, you're on the show. Hi, how are you? Good. Just turn down your radio so we can make sure we hear you. Oh, yes. All right, go ahead. Hi. Um, so I just wanted to kind of comment on something that was said um, in the whole conversation about free speech. So I'm actually uh, I'm a student at UConn, and um, I am a firm believer that the, the students' rights um, on campus students who are members of marginalized populations, um, their right to exist on a college campus kind of free of persecution and free of bigotry is greater than the right of speakers who have those ideas and beliefs to come on campus and kind of project those onto the student population. All right, Stephanie, thank you for your comment. Uh, Robert, did you want to respond to Stephanie? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think my question there is that, um, okay, so we're going to set these rights up against each other, which I, I don't particularly agree with. But uh, the thing to remember is that when you are making this decision, somebody has to be in charge of deciding you know, what bigotry, what constitutes bigotry and what constitutes just disagreement, uh, where that line is. And I, I think it's important that students remember that that person, the people making those decisions, are the authorities. They're the people in power. So by, by, by setting those intention, what you're basically saying is, hey, I want the people in power to have a veto over what's said. And I, I think that's unfortunate because a lot of the arguments that we hear are that the people in power aren't listening to these disempowered populations. So why would you want to trust them to decide who gets to speak and who doesn't? That, that seems like it wouldn't make any sense. Uh, Ferenc, did you want to, to, to um, answer that as well? Um, yes, I, I think um, Robert and I are probably in agreement that uh, one of the things I tell students is that um, 
be be mindful of whether you're on the left or on the right of of an issue. Um, what you know, how would it feel is if someone that you're a strong backer of was the person who is not allowed to speak. And actually growing up in sort of being in college in the 90s, I remember when someone like Sister Soldier, who has been, um, you know, was banned from college campuses. And, but now, um, you know, I think she still, she still tours, still does speaking engagements. And um, I remember being very sort of critical of the administrators who sort of would not allow her on the college campuses. So these things ebb, ebb and flow. Um, and also the other thing that I would add is that while speakers or these events like um, the Milo Yiannopoulos event or the Charles Murray um, incident at Middlebury get the bulk of our attention, um, the, pop- the populations that are actually oftentimes most vulnerable are staff members um, and untenured faculty um, who can be um, who can be relieved of their positions? Um, you know, you look at last year at Marquette, where there was um, two, two there's a faculty member and an administrator um, who were fired um, because of um, voicing things that were um, deemed um, unpopular. Um, so uh, there we uh, there is room to be a lot more mindful of what's happening on these campuses. Before we take another call, uh, we want Robert Shibley again from FIRE. Your organization also represents those faculty that, that run into these issues. Uh, we do. We often have faculty members. In fact, a- another one at Marquette. Uh, so we'll, we'll use them as a punching bag here. Marquette seems very willing. Uh, in this case, it was a conservative tenured faculty member. They actually uh, have suspended again for for saying something that they felt was embarrassing or unpopular. Uh, but but Ferenc is right. Um, it is generally untenured faculty members have a really tough time with that. There's I think been an unfortunate uh, tendency by a lot of folks on campus to think that free speech and academic freedom are only for the tenured. And that's not true. Tenure is supposed to be something that helps that along. Um, but I, I think with the increase in the adjunct faculty uh, that we've seen and, and the use of that instead of these tenure track or tenured faculty members, there are, I, I think there are, the faculty uh, free speech is under a lot more threat than it has been in the past. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about free speech on college campuses. Join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Matt's calling from Hartford. Matt, you're on the show. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks for taking my call. I'm a professor at Central Connecticut State University, and I just want to say I'm thrilled, absolutely thrilled, that our college students around the country are out uh, saying what they have to say and standing up for what they believe in, and I firmly believe in protest. I also firmly am opposed to the ideas that are, are, you know, the hate speech that's put out there. But I think uh, Mr. Shibley is absolutely correct in that, you know, we have to hear the other side and give them the opportunity to speak, and we shouldn't go against them with, with violence and, and unthought-out uh, protests. We've got to beat their ideas with better ideas, and giving them the opportunity to, to speak gives us an opportunity to dismantle uh, what their arguments actually are, and that's what we should be doing, not just focusing on you know, jumping up and down and screaming and, and, and engaging in violence. We really need to beat their ideas with our ideas. And Matt, when you talk to your students, you know, is there an interest in debate? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I really focus on with my students almost from day one is I discuss with them the difference between opinions and perspectives. And, you know, we know the old saying about opinions. Everybody's got one, right? Uh, But perspectives are something different. Perspectives are our opinions with uh, facts behind them, with with ammunition, with reason, uh, with argument, uh, good arguments. 
And uh, I always tell my students, you know, the college campus, the college classroom is the one place on, you know, in this country and on this planet where any idea should be able to put, be put forward, but don't expect your ideas to go unchallenged. And, and that we have to, I mean, we don't have to agree with somebody. We don't even necessarily need to respect what they have to say, but we have to respect their right to say it and then our right to disagree with it in a reasoned way. Thank you, Matt, for your call. I wanted to go back to Ferenc Lafargue again, director of the Center for Cultural Engagement at Catholic University. Uh, Ferenc, are there other ways that students can, uh, other, uh, you know, ways that students can get their ideas across without jumping up and down and, and shouting something called a shadow event that some university students have used in the past? So, yeah, so... Uh, the students should have their full right to protest, and these protests, whatever form they take, um, that you know, that's something that's outside the control of um, most university administrators. I, I think that's something that we should all just recognize. Um, other approaches that I've seen student groups do um, were, would be to host a shadow event. Um, so if the speaker, and, and it's it's also well worth noting that, we, so there's oftentimes mentioned that, um, you know, that there should be some kind of debate of back and forth. Um, there's sometimes in these speaker contracts where um, they actually say that they don't want a debate. There's some speakers who don't, um, who are very cautious in terms of the kinds of questions that they take. Um, some will only take um, questions in advance. Um, there are, in some of the some of the speakers' bureaus or some of the agencies that put together some of these events, um, they come pre-fashioned in terms of um, who is the person that they want to be as the interlocutor for whoever the speaker is. So uh, there are often tighter restrictions around these events than um, most people um, are aware of. Um, So which is why often, which is why students may have to succumb to doing a shadow event. The other way that students tend to um, kind of show whether or not uh, their, you know, their opinion on the speaker is also just plainly by showing up. Um, I know that as a student affairs administrator, the, the hardest part at times is just getting students to show up for, um, for a lot of these events. Um, so when there are events that are um, kind of, you know, overwhelmed, whether it's because there is a strong opposition, um, in effect, the, the groups that are planning those um, may see that that as a success. If you're c- comparing uh, an, uh, a speaker that brings out you know over 100 people and um, a fair amount of opposition versus any number of the speakers who show up on college campuses that um, maybe you're speaking to an audience about 15 or 20 students, um, you know there's an argument to be made that. Uh, the the high profile event that uh, brings out the opposition as well as the supporters ends up being a more successful event. I wanted to turn to um, back to Connecticut. You know, Fairfield University is located here, and on the phone with us uh, is uh, Jennifer. I know you're with Fairfield University. Just in the last week, there was a controversial speaker um, at the university, a feminist, Ayan Hirsi Ali. Some have called her an anti-Muslim extremist. Uh, how did that event go, Jennifer? The event actually went extremely well. Um, you know, we've we've got something called the Open Visions Forum that we've had for over two decades at Fairfield, which has really brought to the stage global thought leaders from across a whole range of political spectrums um, over the past, you know, two decades or so. So um, when we had the event last Wednesday night, it was a packed house. Um, there were a lot of questions and answers. We made the decision to have live question and answers uh, with the audience. Um, and there was a wide range of dialoguing uh, with the speaker, a lot of questions, um, questions on, on 
both sides of her viewpoints. And, you know, I, I think for all intents and purposes, it, it was a great forum for discussion and forum for hearing, um, you know, somebody's somebody's personal story. Uh, something that we should also note, you know, that week, the Muslim Students Association hosted events about Islam um, mm-hmm. at the at the university. Do you think that helped just having that counterpoint of events all week to talk about um, some of the perceptions of the religion? I, I do think that helped. And, you know, I think that's partly, you know, due to our Jesuit roots. You know, we are dedicated to a culture of inclusion. We allow for a diversity of religions, cultures, perspectives, and we encourage our students to engage in those dialogues. So when we've had, you know, controversial speakers in the past, when national events have happened, you know, our students here on campus have engaged in dialogue with each other, with various faculty and staff members to express their views, discuss their concerns. We've had things like brown bag lunches and forums, and we've even had shadow events that were mentioned uh, just before on the show. Well, I want to thank Jennifer Anderson with Fairfield University. Um, We're almost out of time, but I want to thank Ferenc Lafarge, Director of the Center for Cultural Engagement at Catholic University, for joining this discussion. Also, Robert Shibley, Civil Liberties Attorney, Executive Director of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Robert and Ferenc, thank you both. Thank you for having us. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're shifting topic to juvenile justice and a unique Second Chance program in New Haven. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Diversion programs offer first-time youth offenders an alternative to the juvenile justice system, sometimes called the pipeline to prison. For a little over a year in New Haven, a diversion program called Project Youth Court has taken shape. WNPR's Lori Mack reported on the program. She joins us now from WNPR's New Haven studio. Hi, Lori. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So tell us about Project Youth Court. How is this different than uh, the traditional juvenile justice setting? So the biggest difference uh, that young offenders will see is, um, first of all, they have to be referred to the program, and they have to choose to participate. And the biggest thing that they will notice when they walk into a courtroom is that it will be filled with young faces. Kids are judged by their peers, not adults. So this has a potential of making a big impact because kids around the same age are saying to another kid who took a wrong turn uh, and messed up, this is what you did wrong, and here's what you need to do to fix it. This has been around for about a year. Who's training these kids in the court? They go through uh, different training courses. So they receive law-related education, which is provided by attorneys in the community, along with um, Project Youth Court staff. They get training in restorative justice. They learn about attorney skills, how to deliberate. They conduct mock trials, uh, and they are um, practice their skills there. And then they're critiqued by real attorneys. I also want to say they are a trauma-informed organization. They have four volunteer students who've gone through um, and made up, make up now a trauma team, so they help assist the other volunteers in knowing how to work best with the clients who've been exposed to trauma. Now, Laura, you visited this court in New Haven. You spoke to some of these students, including New Haven 11th grader Sierra Welch. Let's hear what she told you. And we're not here to interrogate you. We're not here to send you to jail. We're not here to look at you like you are bad. No. What we are here to do is help you and let you know that you are not alone. What's the reaction from students who are sent to this court because they've gotten into trouble when they hear their peers talking to them in that way? 
they so I did talk to someone who was a client and her reaction was that she felt incredibly supported and that was uh, that made a huge difference to her um, that was the overall common thread with all of these volunteers was that they really wanted to help and one of those clients was I think Sanaya James is that how you say her name yes she's an eighth grader from New Haven uh, and this is what she told you I made a stupid mistake very stupid I was like, oh, gosh, I'm going to jail. I'm never going to see my grandparents. I'm never going to see nobody. And then that's when, like, all of them come for me, and they was like, oh, we're here to help you and stuff. So then I got a little bit better. And then when I came the first time, then they always, like, so nice to me, and they let me speak, and they never judged anybody. I understand she's now on the jury. How does it work for people who first go through the process, the client process, and then how they're then worked through the program to, you know, help others? So she came in as a client, as you said. Um, They are given a a restorative contract so that they must fulfill. Um, She has, by the way, completed her restorative contract. I'm really glad you played her clip. I'll say more in a second. But uh, on that restorative contract, they will be uh, recommended to complete a certain number of community service hours or maybe um, provide a written letter of apology perhaps uh, attend some programs, all of them must participate on the jury. So they must go and be part of the jury. This is an important part of the program because the clients are now integrated into the group and they will be on the other side. This is the time that they're judging another kid who messed up. They know exactly what it feels like to sit where they are. So they can offer a perspective that most of the youth um, court volunteers can't. So Sanaya, in her case, she fulfilled her restorative contract. She had mentioned to me when I, ta- when I spoke with her that she was very interested in becoming a volunteer, and she has since done that. So she's gone through two training courses, and um, I talked to the director, Jane Mashad, and she says that Sanaya is now chomping at the bit to be an attorney. You also spoke to attorney and board members of this program, Amanda Oaks. There's a reason that these things are going on, and a lot of the reasons that these students are committing these offenses are because of things that we hear about in our country every day. Poverty, housing issues, violence, domestic violence. It's very frequent that we have a client whose parent is incarcerated or whose family has struggled with drug abuse. So you're getting an idea of what's happening in in the home. Um, You said that this program has been around for a year, so what kind of uh, impact is it making? On the on the clients on the yeah the clients the the young people so so far I can say this um, because they're so new and they're still being discovered I know that they have three clients who have decided to stay after successfully completing their restorative contracts so they have chosen to now become volunteers I know that they have heard over twenty cases and out of those twenty cases that they've heard so far it's they have had 85 to 90 percent success rate, meaning that those clients have completed their restorative contract successfully. And the, the point that the young person that decides to go to youth court, uh, they're, they're staying out of the juvenile justice system because once they're in the system, it's a lot harder for them to get back out. Right. Right. So they do have to make the decision when they're referred to the program. They do have to decide to participate. They also have to take responsibility for their actions. So guilt has already been determined. And Project Youth Court's happening in New Haven. Anywhere else in the state? 
There are over a th- no, not in this state. This is the only one that exists in Connecticut. There are over a thousand youth courts that are um, in other, I think, forty-nine states, including the District of Columbia. Um, so it's it's up and running all over the place. It's an interesting program considering the idea of second chance. We hear so often from uh, Governor Malloy's administration um, to to help people that have already been in prison and when they get out so that they don't return. But the idea of being proactive, helping these young people so they stay out of prison. Mm-hmm. Is this a program that has, um, you know, that can has legs and will continue? That's that's the hope. Um, the, it's hard to get real statistics. Um as these other states have um, also taken on youth courts, it's important to say that there is a national model that they follow, but they're all different. So, for example, their referral sources are different. In New Haven, their clients are referred by either the New Haven Police Department or public schools in New Haven. Uh, in other states, that that varies. It could be a probation officer or family court. There is also a difference in who judges. In New Haven, there's always an adult who's either a judge or an attorney who presides over the cases in other states. That could be a youth as well. And there's funding for this? That's a problem. Um, they have been, they've gotten some grants and uh, help from the United Way and some private donors, but that is certainly an issue that they are struggling with is funding. Well, I want to thank WMPR's Lori Mack. You can learn more about her story on our website, WMPR.org. Lori, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. You can check out our website, WMPR.org, slash where we live, for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening.